morning. Good morning. Uh, our reading for today is in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse let me see, 35 to 45. When the day was now far spent, the disciples came to him and said, This is the deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, and they may go into the surrounding country and villages to buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to sit before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. You know, if you are new to Bayless, uh, it's common to have people in our service who are in a variety of different places spiritually, some of whom may be very new to the Bible and maybe have cracked open a Bible yourself. If you don't have a Bible, one of the greatest things, again, one of our greatest privileges would be to give you one. So that Bible that's underneath your seat, take it as our gift to you. You're not stealing from a church. We want you to have it. Please take it. And Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be, and I think in, nine, in, in uh, page number 933, um, somewhere around there. And uh, you can also look on your phone if you're looking for this passage. We're going to be picking up as Marianne read in verse 43. Um, my name again, if you are just now joining us in person or online, is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here. You've already heard from a few of them. Larry and John um, are also, Larry, Larry Babb and John Christensen, two of our other elders here. And together we shoulder the burden of caring for and leading and shepherding you. It's a privilege and a joy. And so in every week, one of my greatest privileges is to be able to see what God has said and be able to respond to it myself and to lead us to do the same. But if you're new to Bayless, I just have to tell you, it is a really, really encouraging time to be here. At least it is for me. Uh, last week, uh, as Chris has already pointed out, we had over 40 people here, 40 people from another church that gave up, that took work off, that had been planning for months, literally, uh, bought all the supplies and showed up here on our church campus just to bless our church and to help us to engage our neighbors with the gospel. It's a really incredible thing. 
In fact, I, I mean, the, they spent hours um, from the morning into the afternoon shoveling mulch to, you'll see these sound barriers that are behind us to help absorb some sound that they built on that day, but also walking the neighborhood. And that was perhaps one of the most significant things for me is they went door to door and um, they uh, distributed batteries, which I know seems really random, but every, we say every spring, you know, this, the fire department wants us to replace the smoke detector battery. So we wanted a, a way to bless our neighbors and find out how to pray for them. Um, one man they uh, talked to um, was uh, very quick to say he's uh, Bosnian, he's a Muslim, and he's not interested. And uh, the guy uh, who was there, thankfully, was wise enough to say, oh, you know what, that's okay. Hey, can I ask you about your truck here? And he got really excited about his truck. And uh, he's, uh, they ended up talking for 20 minutes about hunting and fishing. And pretty soon this guy who was initially skeptical and stiff-armed said, you need to come inside. I have, to, I have some trophies to show you. So he brought him in the home was, and was feeding him and uh, interacting with this, again, these, this couple that before had just been rejected on the front lawn. And so what a cool thing, but also another woman who was uh, broken-hearted in our community who was, they were able to pray with, who had just gotten some very, very terrible news. When, they, when somebody asked her how to pray for her, she just uh, spilled her guts to, the, to, uh, to a few people from, again, Genesis Church who had come to love on behalf of Bayless. And it was a reminder to me, friends, we are surrounded by neighbors who need Christ. And uh, what an opportunity God has to put us in the neighborhood that we are in. It's a really, really exciting time to be a part of our church, seeing what God is doing in and sometimes in spite of us. And uh, friends, if you feel a little intimidated to, to take those steps of obedience, um, trust me, I do too, uh, but God is uh, showing off in some pretty wonderful display. I know some of you showed up this last week, especially to do some door knocking, and it was the very last thing you ever imagined yourself doing. And so nonetheless, I was so glad to see what God did in and through you. Um, but we, uh, we say often that the gospel transforms all of life, that it changes everything. And we're beginning to see the effects of that here in some pretty clear ways. Not everything is sunshine and butterflies, of course, but all around me, I see you taking risks on behalf of one another and explaining the gospel to those who would disagree with you, even family members. I see many of you in pursuing intentional friendships with others uh, that you don't honestly have a lot in common with, which is really fun to watch. And uh, I just last week, again, saw so many of you um, go way outside of your comfort zone the, for the so that neighbors might see the love that we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not only becoming more aware of our neighbors and needs during this time, God is producing in us a desire to meet those needs, which is actually bound up in the Christian uh, definition of compassion. It's normal, though, that when God invites us, even requires us to step into greater and greater obedience, we can get a little nervous. And in this season, we're taking some steps of obedience as a church that honestly make me very nervous. Whether it's investigating our long-term relationship with a facility like this one, or expecting that a church like ours that was once on its deathbed just, what, three, four, five years ago, now again to have an active and bold presence in our city. I wish I was so confident all the time of what God was up to, but sometimes I go to bed wondering if I'm the right guy. I go to bed wondering, God, are, are you going to catch us as we step out here? Don't you see all that we don't have? 
Do you realize, do people realize how little I actually know? We don't exactly have anywhere else to go, God. We, we need you to actually show up. Today, we're going to consider a narrative all about what it's like to obey when it's not all that clear what is ahead, even when all you see might be lack. Considering one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. In fact, not uh, it's one of the only miracles that is uh, written about in all four of the Gospels, all four of the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. And we're going to break it down into three parts, three things that Jesus reveals that I think uh, disrupt all of us, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. And these three things that Jesus reveals are our common need, our real lack, and our, un- our limitless source our limitless provider. Let's look at the first, though. Jesus reveals our common need. Our passage picks up with Jesus and his disciples, his closest friends and followers, and they have taken what they initially thought was going to be a much-deserved getaway after what had been an eventful but also very exhausting few weeks. As much as they needed rest, however, Jesus had become at this point, too much of a popular figure, way too popular for him simply to get away, more popular than anyone had been in recent memory. He was drawing people from as many as a few days' journey away, people traveling multiple days just to see this miracle worker, this prophet. And they suspected, after all, that he was not just a prophet, a long-awaited voice from God after hundreds of years of silence, but maybe Maybe, just maybe even the Messiah, a rescuer for the Jewish people. And they weren't, at this point, just about to let him get away. And sure enough, in the verses leading up to this, they tell us that at least some in the crowd scoped out where Jesus was heading in that boat and decided to beat him there, race him there. And I don't know about you, but if I was the disciples in that boat, I would have been more than a little irritated by it all. Not just at the crowds, who wouldn't let them have a moment's peace. But I would have been irritated probably at Jesus himself, who insisted on pulling the boat ashore. After all, it wouldn't have been so hard, to be honest, to have redirected the course of that boat and said, okay, Jesus, do you see what's there? I mean, let's just get over to the other side of the lake if we have to. I mean, can we at least have a, a conversation, Jesus, before pulling the boat ashore? But of course, compassionate Jesus had to be compassionate again in the most inconvenient way. He refused to leave the crowds behind. Verse 33 tells us because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Tim Keller, an author and pastor, says that compassion voluntarily attaches our heart to another. Compassion voluntarily attaches our heart to another, which is what Jesus does here. After all, the disciples and Jesus are encountering the same need, the same crowd in front of them, but only one seems to care. The disciples remain detached, And all of that comes out actually in verse 35. Reading a bit between the lines, we can almost hear them say, okay, wow, will you look at the time, Jesus? It's been a day. Still, it's getting late, and to be honest, we're real tired. Uh, You led us here to get some 
rest after all, Jesus, and that's the last thing that we've gotten, not that we're complaining, but Jesus, I don't know if you realize it too, you've kind of led us into, you led us into a bind, you've led us into a crisis here. It's getting, it's getting late, no one's got anything left to eat, and look around. Unless you've forgotten, you've led us out into the wilderness, and not just a crowd, and not just us, but not just one, two, but 5,000 people, 5,000 men, give it or take, who are about to turn into a hangry mob. Please, you've done enough, Jesus. It's time to let them go now. Please, please, please just let them go. You have to wonder, like the disciples, what was Jesus thinking at this point? Was he caught by surprise when the disciples came tugging on his cloak at the end of the day? Oh man, look at the time. You're right. I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. You see, Jesus' actions aren't quite as random as they can seem to be to us on the surface. So often, Jesus' actions have a symbolic significance, including, of all things, the wilderness itself. The wilderness, what John Mark calls a desolate place, the place where Jesus has led him and his disciples, where they're now gathered on these grassy hills, actually has massive significance as a symbol in the Bible. Now, what we know at this time is that the wilderness was actually a dangerous and barren place. It was viewed as a cursed place, a place where very little would grow, where criminals would retreat, a place where humans just could not and should not last, a place only for wild animals. The wilderness played a crucial role, though, in Israel's history. As dangerous and barren as it seemed to be in that society, camping would have not been a thing, in other words, the wilderness nonetheless took on enormous symbolic significance. It goes back actually to their very origins as a nation, as a people. In fact, after the Hebrews were freed from Egypt, from their Egyptian oppressors and slave masters, led by Moses by great signs of power out of their slavery, the fiery pillar of God's presence led them straight into the wilderness. And it wasn't, it was in the wilderness, actually, that God took this fragmented, these fragmented tribes of former slaves that had no national identity, let let alone loyalty outside of their own family group. He bound these fragmented tribes into a nation. It was in the wilderness that they became a people for God's own possession, not just in a legal sense, but in an experiential sense. You see, in the wilderness where only God could sustain, where people were not designed to live, is where God's people nonetheless did live and were sustained for over 40 years. Over 40 years. Sustained day after day by the miraculous provision of God himself. That experience in the wilderness, those 40 years being provided for by the hand of God, sustained day after day by his provision, that experience built into the very fabric of their nation, or at least it should have, a deep dependence upon God. A deep-seated awareness that their very existence was contingent upon God's faithfulness. Apart from him, they would not be living, let alone a nation. And it seems that the wilderness, as dangerous and ominous as it would have been, took on, again, a symbolic significance throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 31 refers to the wilderness in, in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah says, 
the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And Hosea too says, speaking of God's people, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there. Isn't that interesting that Jesus speaks of bringing his people, sorry, God speaks of bringing his people out into the wilderness to compel them to woo them even in the wilderness. It's no coincidence then that John the Baptist baptized in the wilderness that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that Jesus so often retreats to the wilderness to pray. And in this very place where God revealed not only their need, not only their frailty, but his faithfulness here in the wilderness, Jesus intends to do it again. For at least two reasons, I think. First is that the wilderness nurtures dependence. The wilderness nurtures dependence. Many people spend their lives avoiding wilderness. Now, I don't mean literally. I mean, mean, some of us, who who in here hates camping? Okay, that's not what I'm referring to at all, okay? So I'm not talking about sleeping out on the dirt on the hard ground, right? So what we're talking about here is a kind of spiritual wilderness. I think some of us spend our lives planning and praying our way into a kind of life which will never surprise us. A kind of life where our safety and our comforts are never challenged. A life where all the risks we take are calculated ones. We wrap our lives in bubble wrap and bike helmets, avoiding the wilderness. And yet, according to the Bible at least, it is often in the wilderness, those times where we are very sure we cannot provide for ourselves, where we cannot sustain after, apart from God's own grace, is often in the wilderness where God meets with us. In fact, many people have found it is in the wilderness times rather than in the times of prosperity and pleasure that their relationship with God becomes truly profound. Because in the wilderness, it's often in times of pain and lack and loss and even in boredom that we begin asking ourselves really important questions questions that we didn't even think to ask before but more importantly it's because in the wilderness that we find ourselves unable to lean on anything or anyone else particularly ourselves in fact sometimes the best place is to be in the wilderness at the end of ourselves that we might finally fall on him After all, let me ask you, do you know anyone who seems to have a deep, steady, authentic relationship with God? Someone who seems to be rock solid in a crisis. Someone who really, and I mean really, does trust God. Chances are, they learned that kind of trust in the wilderness themselves. They learned that kind of trust facing a myriad of moments where they had no other option than to depend upon God. I think many of us want that kind of free and authentically trust-filled relationship with God, don't we? But we often avoid the kind of circumstances that produce it. We try to wiggle out of the wilderness, but consider the fact that there would have been no need for the miracle that Jesus is about to produce, the opportunity to reveal his true nature as God himself 
one of the greatest displays of Jesus' power and provision. There would have been no need for it had the crowds been anywhere else. Is it possible that God has led you into the wilderness that you might experience the same? There's a second reason that Jesus, though, leads them out into the wilderness, and it has to do with something else that Jesus is trying to produce specifically among his disciples. The wilderness nurtures compassion. Again, as Keller points out, compassion voluntarily attaches our hearts to someone else. And one of the things that makes compassion possible is a sense of common need. Without a sense of common need, actually, we detach ourselves from others. We look down on others, saying in our hearts, well, it kind of serves them right, doesn't it? I'm glad I'm not in their shoes, but they kind of got themselves into that mess. Let's see them get it themselves out. In other words, without a sense of common need, our compassion dissolves into pride or pity. Friends, I have to tell you, there's a real danger, even in a church community, when it becomes comfortable, where there is no sense of real dependence, of real need that binds us together. A church that isn't risking in ways that require us to see and say that, God, we don't have what it takes. All that we have is you. A church that does not find that ongoing and very real need soon decays into just another social club where we fight over preference and power. But when I and when you together are deeply aware that I am in need of what God alone can offer, that I am not so unlike the people in front of me, that apart from God's grace, I would be there too, that I am only, when it comes down to it, another beggar pointing other beggars to the bread, only then am I able to truly attach my heart to needs outside of my own. In leading them out to the wilderness, Jesus is putting the disciples on equal footing with the crowd in a place of common need. He is providing the opportunity for not just dependence, but common dependence. Now, the disciples end up doing what we so often do in times of stress. They look out for number one. But it's interesting that Jesus won't let them stay there. Which leads to our second point. Jesus reveals our very real lack. Jesus reveals our real lack. Now let's consider once again the passage. The disciples have just told Jesus, understandably so, that it's time to send everyone home. The conference is over. Let's let them go get some grub. The thing is, though, that the cities around these hills couldn't actually afford to feed a crowd of this size, which we have to remember, there's only 5,000 men in attendance. I mean, so there's 5,000 men in attendance. That doesn't include the women and children that perhaps double, maybe even more of, the, of that number that's there. This would have, even 5,000 would close to double the largest city in the area. And at this time of night, the vendors probably had closed up shop. Still, the disciples figure, I mean, it's not really our responsibility, is it? They'll they're figure it out. They're grown-ups. Maybe they can finally, the disciples can finally get Jesus to themselves. Just them and Jesus. But then notice Jesus' response in verse 27. And at this point, if we're reading carefully, you just have to laugh. What does Jesus say after they say, let the crowds go? He turns to them and says, 
you give them something to eat. Now, I know we would imagine that we would be so unlike the disciples at this point, but still, if we're honest, wouldn't you have gotten irritated? I mean, they've already put with, up with a lot that day. It went much differently than they ever expected, but this is ridiculous. I mean, is he joking? And so they snap at Jesus, and they said to him, I mean, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Woof. I mean, you hear that sharp edge on their voice? It's meaningfully sarcastic. There's a lot of sarcasm, actually, if you didn't know that in the Bible. 200 denarii is, uh, for uh, we, we don't, may not realize, a denarii would have been a day's wage. So this is closely to a, close to a year's wage. The disciples are saying, you want to take a year's salary and just flush it down the drain to feed these people? You give them something to eat. That's real funny, Jesus. You can almost hear them rolling their eyes. Have you ever felt like this, though? Exasperated at your boss or your parents at all, uh, when they were, uh, at all they were asking you already to do and working you like crazy and you're working just trying to keep your head above water, primed to snap at anyone, and then someone makes what seems to be a ridiculous demand on top of demands. I mean, does Jesus think he's being funny? Again, I don't think so, actually. In fact, I think Jesus means what he says. Tim Keller says elsewhere, God's compassion is not something abstract but concrete. It plays out not just in his attitude, but in his actions toward human beings. In other words, God's compassion doesn't just lead him to feel a certain way. It leads him to do certain things. It awakens in the face of need, and it intends to respond. And Jesus invites his disciples to share in his compassion. It reminds me of, I know this is super nerdy, but one of my favorite books, The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, in which Gandalf says to Bilbo, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. Bilbo responds, I, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. It's easy to imagine Jesus with the same twinkle in his eye that Gandalf had, inviting his disciples to take their next step forward in their adventure together. Only they aren't looking to be invited. And I fear I could say the same for us. Like Bilbo, we might be comfortable with the way that our lives are at the present moment. Or at least we don't want them to change. We have enough to worry about as it is. We aren't looking to be invited into adventurous obedience. In fact, all we can see is all we would risk and how much it would cost. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. In fact, I fear that many of us have far too small a view of the usefulness of our lives, friends. We imagine that the best someone can hope for from life is to ride out their days without too much discomfort, without too much cost, without too much risk, a life that gets me home maybe to heaven as safely as possible. We aren't looking for adventurous obedience. In fact, I think many of us fear how that kind of adventurous obedience might change our lives, of how it actually might change us. And we're not all that certain. We want things to be changed. As Gandalf goes on in this quote, you'll have a tale or two to tell when you come back. Bill responds, you can promise that I'll come back? 
No. And if you do, you will not be the same. Friends, notice that when Jesus tells his disciples to obey, he doesn't tell them what is going to happen next. Obedience has no guarantees, specifically that everything is going to work out the way that you want it to, that acting in compassion won't cost or change you. In fact, it most certainly will. Only God knows that exactly what we need. It's exactly what others need. They need for us to change. God hasn't chosen to redeem Christians so that they might ride out their days in relative comfort. In fact, he has chosen to redeem Christians with the express purposes of making Christians useful to him. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For Paul, God has not only taken those who were once dead and in Christ has brought them life, that is certainly true, that is the crux of the gospel, that we are saved by grace and not by works. And yet, sometimes we leave off the point of what God, not only what God has saved us from, which is our sin by securing forgiveness through the cross, we miss what God indeed has saved us for. That God intends to do far more with your life than you do. He has recreated them for good works. Good works which he planned when he first chose to save them. Still, the needs are extreme, aren't they? I mean, the disciples, what are they facing down? Feeding 5,000 people? Obviously more than that. I mean, who could imagine meeting a need like this? And yet, Notice that Jesus refuses to then back down. He refuses to let the issue rest, saying to the disciples, well, how many loaves do you have? Why don't you go and see? Again, you can almost hear them throw up their hands. Okay, fine. How humiliating. Going throughout the crowd, asking, uh, anybody here have something to eat? Anybody, how about you have something to eat? As if after the day in a hot sun, they or their kids hadn't already scarfed down all the snacks they came with until we don't know how much later, again, after all the sun is still setting at this point, they bring forward five loaves, probably small barley loaves that are the size of my fist, and two dried fish. Here you go, Jesus. Not exactly a king's feast, is it? What do you want us to do? And yet, I think many of us can empathize. After all, there are times in my life where God seems to ask things of me that just seem way too big for me or our family to handle, especially when it comes to acting in compassion. Sometimes, if we're honest, it's easier not to care, isn't it? Sometimes because the needs are just way too big. How could I ever impact them? How could I ever make a difference when it comes to sex trafficking or generational poverty or homelessness, let alone when it comes to caring for the people that are right in front of me? Am I the only one who wonders to themselves, I mean, surely they don't need me. They, don't, they would never listen to me. I'm not even sure what I could say or what I could do to help. I don't even know what the first step might look like. Often it's Easier to distract ourselves, to excuse ourselves, to assume it's someone else's problem because the needs are just too overwhelming and who knows how it could change my life. 
still. What does God have to say about all this? I think some of us then expect that God is like a divine cheerleader at this point. You've got this, Evan. I know this is daunting, but I believe in you. You just need to believe in yourself. You've got this. However, that's not what Jesus does here. He gets their lack. In fact, he seems on, in, intent on making their lack more clear to them, to their humiliation. He makes them count their limited resources. Yep, I know. Five loaves, two fish. Not exactly enough to feed the crowd. You don't have enough, do you? I've heard it said that the number one job of a leader is to define reality. But this is a bit extreme. This is a bit much, isn't it? After all, this betrays what much of our culture seems to assume. There's a lot in our present culture that tells us all we need is to believe in ourselves, to seize our inner strength, to preach to ourselves in the, mi in the mirror. No, you really are enough. But friends, in the face of overwhelming need, in the face of Jesus saying, you give them something to eat, we actually need to admit our inability. We need to admit, so far as we can see it, that what we have to offer is so pathetically insignificant, it is like five loaves and two fish for a crowd far beyond that size. Friends, as strange as it sounds, Jesus asks us to look hard at our own inability, not to ignore it, until we realize we don't need to believe in ourselves so much as we need to believe in him. It's interesting, the disciples' response reminds me of Moses yet again. Thinking back to those time, that time in the wilderness, which I think is the author's intent. After all, in the wilderness, Moses, who led God's people in those 40 years wandering, gets basically a 40-year complaint from his fellow Israelites who want nothing more than to get out of this wilderness and go back to Egypt, you know, where they were so happy as slaves saying ridiculous things like, man, don't you remember how good it was back then? Don't you remember the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions that we had in Egypt? Free of charge, man, that was the life. Author Jackie Hill Perry puts it this way, ain't it funny how the body will have you willing to be a slave again? The body will make you miss a place you weren't even happy in. In Numbers 11, Israel complains yet again, this time asking for Moses to spruce up the spread. They're getting sick of the manna, which we'll get to in a second. It wasn't cutting for them, and now they want some meat. And it's no wonder an exasperated Moses cries out to God, Where am I to get meat for all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? To which God responds, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Jesus leads them out to this extreme place, revealing their common need, reveals their very real lack, so that then he can offer his matchless provision. That's number three, Jesus reveals his matchless provision. What comes next surprises everyone. We're not sure how aware the crowds are of what took place, but after commanding the crowd to sit down, grouping them in groups of 50s and 100s on the green grass, which is interesting that, G that Moses did something like the same among his people, and after a short prayer to heaven, Jesus takes the measly provisions they had in hand and breaks them in half and breaks them in half again, and breaks them in half again, 
and again, handing half after half into the hands of the disciples as if to say, grabbing the baskets, there you go, now you have something to give them to eat. It's about, talk about shutting someone up. I mean, you can assume that pre-modern people like this uh, expected the supernatural to happen all the time, but this seems to have surprised the disciples as much as it would have had us as the measly portion, a measly portion which he had them count, has become a meal for the masses. So much so that each disciple goes home with a basket of leftovers, a basket apiece. Again, talk about shutting someone up as each disciple has in front of him the evidence of God's mercy, of his power, of his clear provision. It's a miracle by any estimation. But again, the miracle is doing far more here than we realize. It's looking far beyond even itself. First, of course, it recalls Israel back in that wilderness wandering where God, where the place where God provided for his people. But not only provided for them, but provided bread from the sky, which is what Manna was called. It means, what is it? This bread from the sky that fed them for 40 years. Whether the disciples recognized it or not, the true and the better Moses is here supplying again what his people lack. But even more importantly, this miracle looks further into Jesus' life to an even more important meal that Jesus would host, a meal he would share with his disciples. In fact, we celebrate it every Sunday here at Bayless, remembering how Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. You see, Jesus would provide for needs even greater than physical hunger, specifically our deepest need for forgiveness and restoration to God himself. And he would provide it to a crowd greater than the one on the hillside, but in order to invite us to that table, to eat with Jesus himself as our host, to enjoy the satisfaction that Jesus alone can provide, Jesus needed to be broken first. Living bread, broken that he might multiply life for many. Romans 5 puts it this way in verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam and his sin, much more will those who have received, who, who, sorry, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel offers us true abundance, the abundance we need, and we really could never generate on our own. And that abundance purchased not with 200 or 2,000 denarii, but with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross itself. It's important to say that when Christians take the bread and the cup, they come to that table empty-handed, not offering a resume, not offering even loaves or fish. They come in deep need, having only lack to offer. Only then can they be satisfied by his grace. Only then can they receive the abundance overflowing of his grace. Only then can they be given something to give. Friends, only the gospel can take stubborn people with small imaginations like us and make them expectant people, generous people, risk-taking people in their compassion. After all, what could they possibly give that has not been given to them already? Whose resources are they really dependent upon anyways? 
It's not ours. It's not our talent. It's not our experience. It's not our resources, not our youthfulness or lack thereof. The gospel reminds us that God has provided what he requires and will do so again and again and again for those who seek his kingdom and his righteousness, for those who respond to the real needs in front of them, even if they're not sure what the next step will look like or if they will have enough or if they're best, the best qualified candidate to do much. Imagine with me what God might do with a church that believed this, that took courageous, risk-taking steps of courage. Imagine if we began to think differently about the people and needs in front of us. If we began to wonder, I I wonder what God could do there. Might he save? Could God change that? Might he provide? Might he use someone as hesitant and limited as me in the process? The Lord knows that we doubt. See, the Lord knows that we can't meet every need. But friends, there are some needs that he intends for us to meet. And he alone can provide the resources for them. Let me give you just a couple quick stories about this. One, I heard a story recently about a woman who was compelled again by the compassion of Christ and saw a need right in front of her. Every day on her way to work, she drove past a strip club on the way and her heart broke for the strippers, the women who were there working. And so one day she decided to kind of take a risk and ask the management if she could bring a meal one night. Management was very skeptical about this, as were the women who enjoyed it, obviously figuring, well, this this woman's a Christian, right? She surely doesn't like people like us. Only she did it week after week after week, her and a friend, and anonymously caring for these women that many others didn't care for, finding that many of them had entered into this trade having been abused, having been experiencing terrible things themselves, and giving Jesus' compassion to real image bearers helped these women, many of whom, walk away from that very trade. Over that year of just a simple feeding, simple love, simple compassion, meeting a need in front of them, even though they didn't know what would come next, they helped bring transformative power to those who really did need it. Now, obviously, it didn't always work out of the way that she expected it would, and many of those women uh, didn't come to appreciate it, and many of them remain into the trade to this day. But notice what God did through one woman making a courageous, risk-taking act of compassion, expecting God as the one who would provide the next step. One of the other examples I actually see around me today as we are a church that is making big deal of saying we are a church that makes disciples who make disciples. What that means is that every single human being a person that's been saved by Christ that belongs to this church is made useful for his kingdom work but made useful to others. That each person, each disciple can do spiritual good for others, other disciples even if you may not feel so qualified. And I've seen some of you who have never taken the kind of initiative and these kind of friendships still do. Inviting others to cups of coffee and out for lunch and opening up the Bible just expecting that the Lord would speak. Yes, you've put your foot in your mouth, and yes, it's not always been certain what you say next or do next, and some of you have even have been risking this with, with those who would openly not consider themselves to be Christians, but you know what I see at work in there? I see Jesus showing up again, providing what you do not have so that he could get the glory. Friends, what might God do with a church that believed he provided that recognized its common need and that they do not have what it takes and expect God to work miracles yet again. Hope you join with me in prayer. Lord, we 
want to be those kind of people who love and take risks on behalf of others, who are moved by compassion to meet the needs in front of us. And we don't always know what those needs are. We need, some of us just need wisdom to know, to notice people around us, family members and friends and neighbors, to go out of our way to get to know what those needs are. Some of us uh, are, very, are trying to meet those needs and we feel at our wit's end. We feel like we've, we've only bungled it. We're not sure that what we're doing is helpful. We need, we need wisdom for that too. We need others around us to help correct and encourage us. We need to see Christ, again, who has sacrificed on our behalf that we might keep sacrificing, not because we're better than, but, we're, but because we are fellow beggars pointing each other to the bread. And we, and we, we know that the only hope that we could be those kind of self-denying people is actually the cross, where Christ laid his own life aside, securing great abundance for us. Would we know that we have the fount of every blessing which has been opened to us by his blood? We have everything we need in him. And we are seen as hesitant, as broken, and as failing as we actually are, and yet still given good works to do. Would we be able to tell stories of that faithfulness in the coming months and years? And God, would our city see a church that requires a gospel explanation? And we pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King, the one who multiplied loaves and who is broken like bread. We pray for his sake, amen.